Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. On today's episode, I'm joined by Betsy Rhodes. Betsy is a survivor of suicide loss and a current volunteer for the North Carolina chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, on this episode, Betsy and I talk about what it was like losing her son, Luke, to suicide in 2003 and how that impacted her faith. We also talk about how the AFSP has helped her tremendously through her loss. Betsy and I also discuss International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day, which is coming up on November 19th. Uh, We also talk about how many families are ill-prepared to deal with suicide loss. And finally, we get into the importance of finding community after losing a loved one to suicide. I believe this episode will be helpful to anyone who has lost a child to suicide or really anyone who is a survivor of suicide loss who is looking for resources as they go through their grieving process. Uh, We did have some challenges with Betsy's audio for the first seven minutes or so, but it does get better after that. So let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit BetterHelp dot com slash w o t w for writing on the walls that's better h e l p dot com backslash w o t w to get 10 percent off your first month of therapy thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today Betsy, good to see you again. Good to see you, Rob. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I think, yeah, there's a lot of different directions we could go today in terms of your experience with American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, as well as being a survivor of suicide loss yourself. One of the things I definitely would like to dive into today is the upcoming um, International Survivor of Suicide Loss Day which uh, mm-hmm. I believe is on November 19th. I understand you're, you're pretty involved with that from AFSP standpoint. But before we kind of formally kick things off, there's a question that I really like to lead with. First and foremost, offer my sincerest condolences. Certainly understand what it's like to be a survivor of suicide loss and all of the challenges that come along with that. When it comes to the loss of your son, Luke, when he was, I believe, 23 years old, Could you kind of take us there for a second and tell us about what is the most important thing you learned, either from Luke or from his loss to suicide? Um, Well, there were so many lessons. Um, The thing I learned most from Luke was just love. Um, Luke was our first child, my first child, uh, and any parent can tell you the first time you hold your first child, 
the experience is like none other. It's, you know, you think you've loved before because you've loved your spouse, you've loved your parents, you've loved your siblings and others. But until you hold that first child, you you don't understand what the powerful emotion of real love. Mm. And, um, and he taught me that. And for me, as a person of faith, you know, it was also, oh my goodness, is this how God loves me? It was just all that combined. And also too, it was a lot of um, humility because I suddenly got and understood my parents on a whole different level (laughs) and suddenly felt a lot of grace toward them uh, for, you know, just, you know, there's always that tension. And um, it was just that, uh, uh, just learning what real, true, deep, love is from Luke. And he was an incredible human being. I mean, he was funny and brilliant and just everybody's friend and just caring and loving. And he just exuded love. And Mm. uh, so that I learned love from him. Um, From his loss, uh, I learned to accept and to not embrace, but to face my ignorance about mental wellness and mental Mm. health. Uh, We were a family that was ignorant about mental conditions and mental health. And his death slapped us in the face and it ripped off a blindfold that we had had on our eyes for years. Mm. And, um, you know, it's the brave part is facing that, accepting that and when I knew better, I did better. Learning what we did not know, self-forgiveness, and then moving forward with what we do know now and doing better. So. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that and, and diving mm-hmm. into that. Um, could, could you kind of take us through what that was like? I, I think next year will be 20 years that you've yes. lost Luke. Is that right? Exactly. We're coming up on the 20th. In some ways, it's probably gone by in the blink of an eye, and in other ways, it probably feels like a lifetime. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could mm-hmm. kind of take us through, I, I think it would be helpful for those listening who are maybe early on um, mm-hmm. in, in going through a loss like this. What was that immediate aftermath like for you? Could you take us through you finding sure. out and yeah. what, what the immediate aftermath was like? Sure. It was... Um... Uh, you know, it was a Sunday morning. We had skipped church because my husband was working the night shift. He was in corrections and uh, was a um, a guard um, at at a at a prison. And um, uh, he, I had slept in. I was having sleep issues, and because of his schedule, I was staying up all night and then being up all day. So we had skipped church so that I could sleep in because he was going to come home at seven, relieve me, you know, get the kids up. We had two younger children, six and eight, and uh, so that I could sleep a little. And about 11 o'clock that morning, my little boy, who was six, Johnny, comes bounding onto my bed, and he jumps on the bed, and he goes, Mommy, Mommy, there are men at the door and they've got uniforms just like daddy. Mm. And I remember just knowing Mm. that one of my adult children, I had a daughter who had taken my husband's truck and heading back to UVA, Caroline. And I, I just remember thinking, Oh my God, she's been in a wreck. 
I just knew the minute the door were policemen and it was a notification. I just, I just knew. And so I remember walking into the dining room and Bernie was kind of hunched over the dining room table and there were two police officers there. And um, I just said, Caroline or Luke? And he said, Luke. And that took me aback because in my head, I had been so worried about Caroline and the, the truck, you know. Mm. And uh, it was Luke. And I said, Luke, I just talked. He just called last night. He was fine. He was going out with friends. And he, and then he looked at me and he goes, you need to sit down. And I did. And he said he killed himself. And I was just, mm. uh, 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 in a second, it's like the universe opens up and nothing makes sense and yet everything makes sense. I, I I knew he was struggling with some things or had in the past, but all of a sudden it was like, oh my God. And um, after the police left, I just ran to my son's younger son's bedroom. He had bunk beds and he and Luke would sleep together when Luke would come home from college. Luke was in grad school at UNC Chapel Hill. And he had just been there two weeks earlier. And uh, I grabbed the pillow that Luke used because I knew I could still smell him. And I just hugged my pillow. Oh, anyway. Uh, really, really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, definitely felt it heavy on this side. You know, it's something I know that can just come on really intensely. It, I don't think it matters how long it's been since it happened. Um, it's really easy in a moment's notice to just feel like you're back there again. Could you, could you kind of walk us through some of the feelings that showed up for you in that in that initial week or month that followed? What what were you feeling? Uh, I will say the week, maybe even the second up and through the second week. You know, we were planning the funeral, we were planning the service, we were making arrangements and all. Um, I compartmentalized. I had to put it in a small box and just function. And um, my mother-in-law, I've had two marriages. My first husband died of Lou Gehrig's disease when Luke was um, six years old. And my younger daughter, uh, Caroline, was four. And then I was single for eight years and then remarried. My mother-in-law from my first marriage, who I was always very close to, she said something to me. She had lost a son. You know, she had lost my first husband. And she said, "Um, this is the last thing you will do for Luke. You know, do whatever you want. And that freed me to give him the memorial service that I really felt like he deserved. And Mm. so I poured all my energy to that, but I was compartmentalizing because I could not face the, I was still in shock. I really had not, I guess I was in that denial type thing of like, whatever. Um, And so that was the emotion of like just functioning. And then after everybody left um, is when the waves of the reality hits. Mm-hmm. And um, the first year was like a roller coaster. I mean, you know, they always talk about the different stages of grief. And what they don't tell you is that you can experience all of them within a 10 minute time span sometimes. Right, right. And some days I could function and some days I couldn't. Um, it impacted. Uh, I, I mean, guilt was guilt was the most horrific uh, thing that I felt. How could I not see my son's pain? How could I not know this? He and I were so close, so connected. 
we had a three hour conversation the Wednesday night before he died. He died on a um, Sunday morning at 3 a.m. And, and, you know, how could he, how, how, how did I not get it? How did I not miss the signs? How did I not know? And um, so then I pretty much shut down and went internal. I'm one who has to process internally. And I started mm-hmm. reading everything I could get my hands on and the books. And I tried to understand and but I was very shut down emotionally to the outside world. Um, there was anger. Um, <clears throat> I had always been a faith leader and a strong faith. And I was angry at God, not because Luke had taken his life. I was angry at God that God didn't reveal to me, didn't push me, didn't nudge me, or I didn't feel that he had. Mm. Uh, I, 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 or, and that God didn't give him some pain relief. Luke had lived with chronic pain for six years from a back injury when he was um, 17. He was snowboarding, uh, you know, did a mogul that was too tricky and crushed his back. And so mm. he had lived with degenerative disc disease for years. And that was the that was one, that was the predominant risk factor. Now, what I didn't understand was that there were other risk factors involved and they kept piling on because I didn't understand mental wellness and I didn't understand how chronic pain so strongly affects um, depression. Yeah. Um, and again, I really, I lay the blame at ignorance. It was just that ignorance. And um, so it was a feeling of guilt. It was all that. And but something inside of me knew I had to get help. I just, I had to get help. And so we immediately reached out to a grief therapist who was incredible. And, and, and we also joined a support group. And again, I I needed to learn what just happened and it was, and I needed to solve the mystery of what just happened. So it's a lot of feelings, you know? Yeah. And and like you said, sometimes a lot all at once. Uh, Sometimes there are feelings that hang around for quite a while Um, I definitely relate to a lot of what you just shared. Um, What I'm curious about is how that has shifted for you in the last 19, almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And what what feelings show up for you around it these days? One of the first things that happened after Luke died that evening, it was the evening after word got out, uh, was that I had a visit from uh, Cecil and Debbie Byram, who were friends of mine from high school, and I hadn't seen them in years, and I didn't know that their son had died by suicide. And they brought me a book by Iris Bolton called My Son, My Son. It's a classic. Iris is a um, psychiatrist or a psychologist, I can't remember which. Anyway, she's a clinician, and she lost her 16-year-old son to suicide, and she wrote this amazing book of what that was like and all. In the book, she says something that has always that stuck with me immediately um a rabbi friend of hers came by and said within every tragedy is a gift the process of healthy grieving is to discover that gift to go deep and learn what that gift is and then embrace Mm. that gift what i've learned through the tragedy of losing luke is that the gift was finding the AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the family of lost survivors who live there. And then having a place, a healthy place to put my pain. Mm. I was going to have this pain the rest of my life. And I could have chosen 
drinking. I could have chosen sleeping the rest of my life and totally shutting down, which would have probably been my go-to. I could have chosen anger and living in that place of anger. I could have chosen guilt and um, just kind of living in that that self-hate mode. But I chose the healthy place of healing and hope, which is what the AFSP provides for survivors like myself. Mm. And, uh, and I found a family there. Um, oh my goodness. I mean, it, you know, we plugged in in 2004, um, the year, um, after Luke died and it started with our support group who we, we plugged into that six weeks after Luke died, we found the support group. And then we decided we're going to start a walk in Virginia beach and out of the darkness walk. And so we created the out of the darkness walk in Virginia beach. And, and then, you know, from there, my relationship has maintained for the last 19 years, you know, or 18 years or whatever. And it's, um, it's given me a healthy purpose for my pain and a place, a healthy place for my pain. And that's, yeah. You know, I hope I answered that question. You did. You did. And um, it, it reminds me of something I heard just last week, actually. We had a gentleman on the show uh, named Dr. David Treadway. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an author of a book called Dead Reckoning, which is about his process of, of facing the grief around the loss of his mother to suicide when he was 20 years old. Wow. Um, also an author of many other books, and he's a, a retired psychologist. Um, and what he said to me last week that's really stuck with me was, something he likes to say around grief is that grieving alone lasts forever and grieving together heals. Yes. And it sounds like that's what the AFSP has provided for you. And I think this is a nice, nice time to kind of segue into that. Um, I I could just share really quickly based on my experience, um, the American foundation for suicide prevention or AFSP uh, is a fantastic organization that does quite a bit of grant-based research around um, both suicide awareness and prevention. They provide a lot of community resources and fundraising around suicide loss. Um, They provide some direct response mechanisms for families that are going through suicide loss. Like I'm thinking of their Healing Conversations program, which is something that was immensely helpful to me when I lost my dad. Um, they connected me to a gentleman who had also lost his father to suicide. And we talked on the phone for probably two hours. Um, and I learned so much from him just in that one conversation. And I think the biggest thing I learned is that feeling I have right in that moment, that feeling of being alone is not real. Um, I mean, like you mentioned with your friends who came to your house after losing Luke, I mean, unfortunately, suicide touches everybody in one way or another. Um, and you know, I think the best thing about an organization like AFSP is bringing those folks together and giving them a place to not just share their pain, but share the solution. Mm -hmm. Um, so it sounds like you got involved with the AFSP pretty soon after losing Luke. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Can you talk about how your involvement started and how it's grown into what it is now over the years? Well, um, like I said before, we had joined a support group in Hampton Roads, which is where uh, we were living at the time. Uh, And 
through the support group, uh, which I strongly suggest grief counseling and a support group, um, a survivor support group, because losing someone to suicide is a complicated grief and it's very unique. It's not like losing to other causes of death. And so it's very specific. Um, And that support group, of course, you all become very close. And um, we, our support group leader brought to us and said, hey, this American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is starting local out of the darkness walks. And they are asking if we'd like to, to participate. And we were like, Absolutely. And by that time, I was very familiar with AFSP because in almost every single book that I would read about suicide, I was trying to learn. And I read probably two dozen books about suicide and suicide loss uh, after mm-hmm. we died. And almost every single one of them pointed to, according to the AFSP research project, the AFSP has said that right, the, right. And their their research is... I mean, we're the largest research, private researcher in the world. Um, and so much of what we know about suicide comes from AFSP research. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, um, so we said, sure. And we started a walk in Virginia Beach, which for many years was one of the largest walks in the country. Wow. Um, and um, it's transitioned a little bit in the years since, but it's, it's steadily growing. I have no doubt it'll be one of the largest again. Uh, but it's, um, you know, just, a, it's been going on for that many years. And so I was a volunteer for, um, and pretty active with that for about five years, six years. And then I took some time off. I'd had my first grandchild and that was again, another this is yeah. great. Be a grandma and uh-huh. had several grandchildren in between. And my wonderful daughter, Caroline, is just, oh. let me just say, when a family loses, when parents lose a child to suicide, the forgotten mourners are often the siblings. Hmm. And there were times that I lost Caroline because of me because I was so lost in my grief. And I just respect so much that how our relationship has grown and shifted. Luke was our buffer. <laughs> Caroline yeah. and I are strong personalities. And when we lost our buffer, he could always make us laugh and get us to see mm-hmm. our other side. When we lost that buffer, we, we had a hard time. Mm-hmm. But through her hard work and her love for me and my love for her, we've you know, come full circle and grandchildren have done that. Okay. I totally went off topic again. No, no, that's, that's okay. That's, that's great to hear. Every relationship is affected. It's a ripple. And I just, I have immense respect for the children, the siblings, because they're the ones who often get lost in the grief process and have to Mm. hold up the family because the parents are so devastated that they can't put one foot in front of the other. That said, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we started with the walk and all that, and I had grandchildren that was focused on rebuilding, you know, just 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 our life as grandparents. And then, and then in 2015, I was able to come back as an employee, and I helped. Um, uh, I was very honored to be the first area director for the new chapter in North Carolina. They'd been around in North Carolina for years, but they started a chapter and had an official board and all that. And mm. thank goodness to Meredith Swafford and her 
fabulous team who pulled all that together and worked as volunteers for years. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it was an honor. And I worked for the AFSP as staff for five years. And then in 2021, I retired. And um, now I'm a volunteer again. Um, so that's how my progression with the AFSP, that's been my AFSP relationship. I will always be AFSP ride or die because this is uh <laughs> It's a great organization and it's a great family. I mean, I, you know, I can reach out to other survivors and Sia. Oh my goodness. She, she lost a husband and mm. she's just fabulous. Her daughter, Dana was a helping, a founding member. She is incredible. You, you know, Meredith, Dennis Tack. I mean, all these people are just incredible. And we have a wonderful staff person, Catherine English, who is, um, is just absolutely fabulous she she's so supportive and she just is amazing so yeah this, this is how this is how i make luke live longer and larger and that's my son luke i don't know if you can see that <laughs> um yeah for those who might just be listening can you can you describe what you're holding okay this is um this is my Luke, and this is a picture. It was um, a quilt square that we did for our digital quilt during the pandemic, and we were asked to make digital quilts, uh, you know, little squares, and so I created this one for Luke, and it's his picture, and it says, I'm fighting suicide because losing my son Luke to suicide in 2003 devastated our family. With healthy grieving, the AFSP helped me better understand depression and suicidal risk, and gave me the passion to help others know how to prevent this tragedy. I fight so Luke can live longer and larger. That's beautiful. It's it's what, as you know, it's what we survivors do. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's that's what makes the AFSP so powerful is uh, it, it provides an immediate resource for those who are early on. Um, in, uh, in surviving a loss. Right. Um, so there are a lot of resources for someone to get plugged in. There are survivors of suicide loss support groups, Mm -hmm. uh, healing conversations program. And then as you, uh, progress and continue to work through your loss, it gives you an opportunity to be on the other side and help people who are going through something similar. Let me bring up one more thing that North Carolina chapter does. Please. And several other chapters do, but it just depends on the chapter's finances. And, and, and it's we got to raise money for the mission, and that's how we do it at our All the Darkness Walks. But we in North Carolina uh, provide bereavement care packages to our families. If we know, if someone tells us, you know, I will take this, we'll send it to, like, if you had a friend who lost someone to suicide, we could send it to you and you could deliver it yourself. Or Mm. it's someone that a funeral home will reach out and say, here's the address for such and such, please send this to them. And it's uh, in it is like, it's just um, some little note cards, a stress ball, um, some sweets um, with the verbiage that um, the journey of grief is long and difficult. We offer these small sweets to assure you that life can be sweet again with time, tears, and healthy grieving and the support of others, including your new AFSP family. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, we also have uh, something called the Four Candles, but it's a lovely package. We also give um, 
we try to match books. As you were talking about our Healing Conversations program, I'm a visitor myself. I visit either by phone, video, or in person with parents who've lost a child. Okay. And so I match with them, and it's a wonderful program. Um, and sometimes our visitors take these bereavement gift care care packages. But we also try to match books. Books are a tremendous help for so many. Um, we have a book, uh, Real Men Do Cry by Eric Hipple. That's for primarily for men who've lost a child. We have the Iris Bolton book. We have, uh, you know, somewhere a spouse has written. Um, we have one, The Forgotten Mourners, Sibling Survivors of Suicide, and mm. so so forth. We even have children's books and teen books for those who may have lost a parent or a sibling. And the goal is to get people on a path of healthy grieving. So that's another way we do it. Um, and then there is ISOSL Day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a nice, nice segue and definitely something I wanted to focus on today, which is um, International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks here. It's November 19th. Um, and I know you've been pretty involved with that from an AFSP standpoint. So if you could maybe just uh, take us take us through um, what is at the heart of International Survivors Day um, and, and what you feel folks can do to commemorate their lost loved ones on this day? Um, the heart of International um, ISOSL Day, which is a long way of saying Survivor Day. Survivor Day is the, the common nickname. Uh, it uh, was started in 1999 by Senator Harry Reid, who lost his father to suicide, and he asked Congress to, um, the United States Senate, to uh, recognize International Survivor, Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. And um, they did. And so the Saturday before Thanksgiving is a nationally recognized and an internationally recognized day to honor those who've lost a loved one to suicide. And the AFSP um, embraced this as a program that they could help with uh, a few years later. And um, uh, so what we do is volunteers like myself um, sign up to lead an ISOSL day in their community. And we have six or seven in our in across the state there's also a north carolina virtual event in the morning and a north carolina virtual event in the evening and even an asl for american sign language event um, virtually and we have a virtual uh spanish um uh, dia de esperanza i'm not good with my spanish but it's the spanish language uh survivor day event that is a national event. And so people can join virtually too. Um, across North Carolina, we have uh, in-person events in Burlington, Charlotte, Elizabeth City, and Raleigh. I'm leading the one in Elizabeth City. As you said so beautifully before, quoting um, the person you quoted, <laughs> <laughs> you know, shared grief heals. And when you can connect with somebody who's been on your grief journey or who understands your grief journey and your pain, it's so healing. And that human connection is so important. And so what we do, it's a very, um, it is a, there's some structure, but there's also enough leeway in the morning that we try to match the 
you know, we move forward in the program as our attendees are moving forward because we want to acknowledge that sometimes maybe the sharing session will last longer than we anticipated. And so we get, so then we'll move to our next segment. Um, we will all gather. I'm going to tell you how the Elizabeth City one's going to work because that's my, sure. my baby. Yep. Uh, we'll gather at 10 in the morning. People can check in. Um, that's very loose. You know, they just come in, they'll have coffee and some, you know, maybe a donut, maybe some fruit. Um, and there will be some healing activities. We're uh, going to have some quilt squares, one digital that they can create on their phone, or they can at least get the link that they can go home and create later and add it to the nat National Digital Memorial Quilt. Or they can come and do an actual physical quilt square that we're going to add to our Northeast North Carolina quilt. And mm. uh, we have those quilt squares there uh, and some fabric paint and things like that. Um, there's also our honor beads, which the AFSP honor beads are very special. Um, we wear our honor beads at different occasions and it shows our connection to suicide. It's a nonverbal way of showing our connection. I wear white because I lost a child to suicide. Uh, if you've lost a spouse, your mother, for example, would wear red because she lost a spouse or a partner. Uh, if you've lost a sibling, you wear orange. You would, um, if you've lost, um, if you've lost a parent, you would wear gold. You would wear a gold rod. Mm -hmm. And different colors signify your connection to suicide. And what's beautiful is that at any event, you can look over and see someone has on white beads and know that they've lost a child. And you just walk up and give them a white bead warrior hug. Mm. You know, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you could see over my shoulder here, but I actually have my, my beads hanging right there. Oh, oh, I see them back there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. It is a cool thing. It is a cool thing to be at an event and, and be able to see everyone's connection. Um, I appreciate you walking us through how the Elizabeth City event's going to go. Um, oh, we'll also what... be showing the film. We have we have six documentaries that we can show, we can pick and choose. I'm going to wait until, you know, the day before our event to decide which of the documentaries, because I try to match the documentary we show with the attendee. And when they register, they indicate what their loss is. And if we have all parents or a predominance of parents, I'll show one where a lost survivors featured that has lost a child. If it's, Got it. we've lost a parent, I will try to gear it towards that. We have some group discussion and then we end with, um, with our four candles poem and lighting some candles. And it's, it's just a beautiful morning. It really is. And it's, it's high impact and um, high connection. Yeah, that's that's really great. Mm -hmm. um, so for anyone who's listening and would like more information, um, I'll, I'll put the link in the uh, show description. But if you go to AFSP.org, you can find information there on um, International Survivors Day, which is coming up November 19th. Um, is it safe to say that there are other local events that are going on that people would be able to check out if they're interested? Absolutely. Um, our walk season, our out of the darkness walks in communities are held in the fall and we have some campus ones in the spring. Um, we're winding down this weekend. Today, the Charlotte out of the darkness walk is happening. Tomorrow, the Wilmington out of the darkness, Wilmington area out of the darkness walk is happening. And uh, the next Saturday, 
we have our statewide virtual event, which is happening at the Northeastern North Carolina um, um, in Elizabeth City. And that's my personal walk. That's the one I'm leading. Okay. Uh, will be happening. And all of that, if you go to AFSP, AFSP.org forward slash North Carolina, spelled out as one word. Okay. That takes you to our chapter page and just scroll down and click events. And that shows you all our events. It also will show you some education events that we may have coming up. Um, I'm not sure if they're posted yet. I think our um, area director, Catherine, is posting those next week. But we have um, education events all, all year long because we educate people about you know, what are the risk factors, you know, beyond, you know, do you really know what the risk factors of yourself and your loved one is? Um, and also knowing those risk factors, um, how do you assess their, you know, their likelihood of suicide and, and at what's, you know, what, what crisis point they're at, uh, creating a safety plan for those with lived experience who have had a suicide attempt or who struggle, uh, as I do not struggle, but live with, uh, a mental health, disorder. I have anxiety disorder. Um, there are helpful resources. And so anyway, we, we educate about, because we know, again, ignorance is what killed my son and what wrecked our family. And that's what suicide does. And just like any other disease, education is the key. Knowing the risk factors, knowing the warning signs, and knowing the protective factors that you can build into your life to mitigate your risk. Those are the mm-hmm. things that we know prevent suicide. And also, too, I'm going to show you my T-shirt, having a real convo, <laughs> yeah. having real conversations. Um, if you go to the AFSP.org website and type in real convo, uh, they're wonderful. They have awesome conversations you can have with people, tips and tools. Like, how do you? What do you say to somebody who's lost someone to suicide? That's a frequently requested thing. What do I say? What do I do? Um, how to talk to someone who tells you they're thinking of suicide. How to talk to someone who is living with a mental health disorder. How to have that real deep, honest, important, impactful conversation. So, um, yeah, real that's, that's great. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. Um, something that's come up a couple times that I would like to maybe pull on is this connection between suicide and um, one's mental wellness or maybe any mental disorders. Um, <clears throat> probably nothing earth shattering there, right? I think it's it's pretty easy to see the connection there, but it's something that often goes unrecognized until um, something catastrophic such as a suicide happens. Um, something you shared with me as we were working toward doing this episode is that there have been other losses to suicide in your family. Mm -hmm. And what I'm wondering, I guess, kind of a two part question is what you see as the connection between one, one's mental wellness and suicide. Um, but also, um, how these things tend to often happen more than once in a family and how you've kind of come to understand, um, the mechanism behind that happening? Um, Oh, good question. There's not a genetic that we know of. Um, There's not a gene for suicide. But we do know 
that families in families, there are some mental health disorders like schizophrenia, like bipolar disorder, like major depression that have a genetic component. And that can give you one risk factor. Mm-hmm. Let me say first, the majority of people in this country, and I think it's one in four, will have a mental health disorder at some time in their life. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And the vast majority of them do not go on to die by suicide. They, you know, they live productive, healthy lives. Um, so what's different about those others? Well, it's multiple risk factors. There's no one contributing factor for suicide. And it's not just mental health. It's also things like genetic impact. It's also, again, you know, having a genetic predisposition towards bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, often undiagnosed. Because Mm. again, you know, we know that mental health disorders in youth and children can start as early as 10. And usually it takes about 10 to 15 years to diagnose. Now that's a long time to go without treatment. You wouldn't do that for a broken arm, right? Mm -hmm. Or for heart disease. So why do we wait so long? Because we don't, we, you know, there's the stigma about mental, mental health conditions. It's changing. I I always say your generation, Rob, the, the, the younger generation, anybody under 30, you guys are going to resolve mental health the way uh, my grandmother's generation cured polio the mm. way my, you know, my generation helped really uh, make changes for in breast cancer and in AIDS. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like there is change a coming. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. The youth and the energy that they're bringing to this issue. Um, okay. Refresh me of the question again, because I went off. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think you answered it. And, and it okay. brings up for me a follow-up question which is, I, I do think you're absolutely right that um, the focus on mental wellness has, uh, continues to increase, which is something that gives me a lot of hope. Um, but I do still think there is this stigma around not just uh, mental health, uh, mental illness, but especially suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's something that I saw firsthand when we lost my dad is mm-hmm. there was this kind of false story going around um, at his wake and his funeral that uh, he had a heart attack and that's how he died. And I, I definitely understand the temptation to maybe hide and mask um, a suicide loss. But for me in that moment, it really didn't feel right to me, um, first and foremost, because it was dishonest. But more importantly, I, I saw the opportunity that was being missed to have the conversation around what really happened and why it might have happened. Um, did you experience anything like that, either with the loss of Luke or any of the other losses you've had in your family? Absolutely. And that's the other risk factor that we don't confront, that families have cultures. And that's a risk factor. We understand that that though there's no gene for suicide in a family, there is families have cultures and these are frequently passed on through generation to generation. And so frequently the culture around suicide is shame. Excuse me, I'm trying to adjust my camera and hopefully I'm not messing things up. Uh, Involves shame and denial. And uh, about six weeks after my son died, I was with my dad 
and we were talking about, and we had just been to a support group. So I was telling my dad, you know, like nobody in our family immediately has died by suicide. And he goes, well, yeah, your sister. And I said, what? I said, Kay, she died of a drug overdose, dad. He goes, oh, that's right. My sister was 44, was 42, and I was 38. So it's not like I was a kid they were trying to hide this from. He said, well, that's right. I forgot that's what we told you. He said, well, the policeman told us that they were 99% sure it was a suicide, but they asked us, how do you want to write this up? Wow. (sighs) So uh, my sister died by suicide. And I said, why would y'all cover that up? He goes, well, that was for your mom. He said, you know, her dad died by suicide. I said, what? Wow. Oh, and then I said, granddaddy died. It was a, um, a, a hair trigger on a gun he was cleaning. Wait a minute. Did he no. kill himself? He, he said, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a note, but the family covered it up because, and the police were willing to cover it up because she was a widow and she wouldn't have got insurance because the laws back then. And Mm. of course it was, and I was like, Oh my gosh. And then, and he said also too, it was just easier for your mom. Your mom will still don't tell your mom. I told you any of this. Mm. I'm like, Oh my gosh. And so then he said, and I said, well, not on your side of the family. And he said, Oh yeah. He said, my uncle David, I said, wait a minute, what? He said, yeah, he, he was, he said, you didn't know him. I said, I didn't know I had a great uncle David. And he goes, well, he died before you were born. He came back from World War One, and he had um, shell shock. Well, that's PTSD. That's mm-hmm. what we call PTSD. And he died on his 30th birthday. He killed himself shortly wow. after he came home from World War One, And it was like, wow, these are the family skeletons. Mm. So anyway, it's just all came flowing out. And um, I then found out that my cousin, who she and I are very much alike, she's very brutally blunt and open. Um, She's uh, battled depression and suicidal thoughts. And she was like, I'm not going to live in this shame. She, you know, she didn't advertise it, but she didn't because of respect for her sensitivities of the family you know, primarily our sweet mamas who, you know, just have a hard time dealing with that because they mm-hmm. are from a different generation. But she, she and I weren't born with the shame chip. I often say I wasn't born with the shame chip and I was not ashamed of Luke. Luke was an incredible human being and he had an illness and that illness caused his brain to be broken and that broken brain caused him to do something terrible. Mm. And it, you know, I I love Mental Health America has this thing called before stage four. If you look it up, it's the B and then the number four, stage four. And it talks about we've got to embrace mental health the same way we talk about other conditions because it's the same thing. You have risk factors and you build up and then you have a crisis because you don't. And then you have warning signs that are put out. And if nobody recognized the warning signs you know, it can lead to suicide, which is terminal. And sometimes these things can be terminal. That's stage four is when Mm. it's a crisis situation. So let's treat it before stage four. Let's address it early in the earliest stages. And that's just a a brilliant analogy. So yeah, um, that's, that's fantastic. I like that a lot. Mental Health America of Central Carolinas and Charlotte. 
And uh, there's Mental Health Americas and Mental Health Associations in Goldsboro and in the Triad and in Nash mm-hmm. County. They, they're all affiliates with MHA, another fabulous nonprofit organization. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing um, your, your experience with your family. And it's amazing how it seems like this happening with Luke in 2003 kind of opened Pandora's box. And all of a sudden you realize that maybe it wasn't your first time dealing with it, but it was the first time that it was out there in the open. Um, and unfortunately, I feel like that story is probably not all that uncommon. I mean, even in my own family, we've had other losses to suicide that were kind of swept under the rug and, and called things they weren't. Um, and I, I certain, like I said before, certainly understand the temptation to do that, but I do think that misses an opportunity to, like you said, have, have the conversation. And let me, let me point out the hope point of all this and the power of being upfront about suicide and talking about it in a healthy way. There is a way to talk about suicide, healthy and not. Um, and there are words, you know, there's language and all that. That's all on the AFSP website. But here's the power of embracing and facing your ignorance and learning and turning around. My son, my youngest son, was six when his brother died. And one of the first books I read, and it was an AFSP research study, said that if you have a child under the age of 12 who loses a parent or sibling to suicide, their likelihood of dying by suicide, they're at greater risk. And it Mm -hmm. changes exponentially because this is what happened. Before the age of 12, children are not able to think abstractly. And so their thought is, I love, my brother was good. My brother chose suicide. Suicide is good. And that Mm. unconscious thought goes deep into their brains. And then later on, because they've got family culture, they may share genetic, they they may have similar risk factors. If they reach a crisis point, this unconscious thought bubbles up. I know a good solution. Suicide Mm -hmm. is good. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, because of AFSP research, there is a fix for that. And the fix is 18 months to two years of therapy, of talk Mm -hmm. therapy, DBT, and creating a family culture that teaches that child a very abstract fault. My brother Luke was good. My brother Luke's brain was broken. That broken Mm -hmm. brain caused him to do a very, very, very bad thing. That very, very, very bad thing was suicide. And I will never, never, never choose suicide because if my brain tells me to, I need to die, I will immediately go to an adult and seek help and get help. Mm -hmm. That's a real layered abstract thought. And you almost have to say that to the child repetitively and create that culture where they can come to you about their feelings, where they, the family's open. I, you know, we became very open about sharing. I'm on Zoloft. I have the vitamin C. We, you know, we, we Mm -hmm. embrace therapy. They went to therapy. Okay. Fast forward 10 years and my son's in middle school. I mean, high school. I'm sorry. He's in high school. He's 16. He's sitting in his cafeteria and he has a thought. You need to die. You need to leave this earth. It Very random. It was a panic attack that came out of the blue. Mm-hmm. He immediately grabbed his car keys and he went to his guidance counselor's office. He laid the keys on the table. And he said, Mr. Dietz, I'm not safe to drive. Call my mother. Have her call my therapist. Wow. 
And that boy today is a U.S. Marine veteran, and he's a firefighter, and he embraces mental health. And, you know, he tells others, if you got an issue, you need to, we need to talk about this. It needs to be open. Mm. You know, and he still is today, you know, is a big believer in treatment and, 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 you know, whatever it takes to keep himself mentally well. Yeah, that's, that's a powerful example. Yeah, and I'm happy you you mentioned DBT, which uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar is dialectical behavioral therapy, which is something I went through about a year long course of. Um, and I wish instead of algebra or calculus, I learned DBT um, when I was in school, because I, I think it's not just an amazing resource, but I think it's something that the earlier it started, the more impactful it can be. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love your idea of, um, getting especially, um, survivors who have lost a sibling as a child involved in something like DBT early on. Uh, I do see how that could definitely pay off in dividends. Well, and I think too, you know, we've got to approach mental health the way we approach other illnesses. Um, and you know, just get checkups or check in with a therapist, even if you're not feeling the feels, even yep. if you're not struggling, it's okay to have a yearly checkup with a therapist. Um, mm. Carrie Washington, the actress, I love this quote. She was once asked, well, why do you see a therapist? You, she talked about seeing a therapist and they're like, why do you see a therapist? You, you're rich, you're famous, you're beautiful. You've got everything. She goes, I have teeth. I go to a dentist for regular checkups. I have a brain. I go to a therapist for regular checkups. I love that. That's what we've got to embrace. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's great. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like we've touched on a lot of what I was hoping to touch on. I just have, I think, two more questions. This has been very helpful. Um, I really appreciate all the resources that you've shared in terms of what the AFSP can provide those who are either going through their own loss or coping with their own suicidal feelings. Just to bring it back real quick to Survivor's Day. Um, which I probably said it six times, but to throw it out there one more time, it's November 19th. Um, I'm wondering for those who are unable to make an official AFSP event, mm -hmm. if there's anything you would recommend that someone could do to commemorate a lost loved one on, on this day. Beautiful question. Um, okay. At the end and of this, and I can give you a link for this so that you can send it out. This is a, and you could probably just Google this. It's called the four candles for anyone. I'm holding up a, it's something we put in our bereavement care packages. And one of the things my grief therapist taught me is at holidays, and, and we're going to be talking about what to do in the holidays, at holidays and on special days, your loved one's birthday, um, significant, you know, the first day of school that can for often trigger, um, mm -hmm. seeing other children going to school and your child is not that sort of thing on these days. Um, if you don't create a ritual of grieving, it's the elephant that lingers in the room and tramples you. Mm -hmm. And what you do by creating a grief ritual is you are exposing the elephant. You're just, you're, you're, shooing him out of the room and you're letting an opportunity for grief to come in and for you to breathe. And once it's over, you always find I can breathe a bit. So create your own grieving ritual. Um, this is one we 
use. It's called the four candles. It's you set up four candles and the first one represents our grief, the pain of loss. The second represents our courage that to confront our sorrow, to confront our ignorance, to comfort each other, to change our lives. The third candle uh, we light in your memory and we try to remember, you know, Mm. something that made us laugh, something times we cried, times we were angry, uh, and the caring and the joy that they bring us. And the fourth candle we light is for our love. And our love is always, and it shines on. And uh, thank you for the gift that you're living brought to each of us. Mm. It's just a simple way. Um, use your own words or create um, something we're going to be doing at the end of our um, this thing is called a wishing willow activity. The willow tree throughout history represents healing. Um, a lot of people don't understand, but in, back in the indigenous times, um, people would scrape the willow bark because that's, contain, that's where we get aspirin from. Mm. <laughs> and so you could scrape the willow bark, give it, make it in a tea, and people would be relieved of their pain. I don't and think I knew also, that. Yeah, it's cool. It's uh, and so old healers will tell you that. And so, and also to the shape of the willow, it's that weeping, you know. And we know that tears helps to flush us of toxins and things, and helps mm. us to relieve our 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 pain. And so the willow represents grieving and pain and healing all in one. And so what we're going to do is give people tiny note cards that they can write. Give us a wish. It's the wishing willow. What do I wish I'd said? Something you wish you had done. Something you wish you could say now to your loved one. Or mm. something you wish you could do again with your loved one. Write that on the card. Put it in an envelope. And attach it to where we have a willow tree that we're going to have there. And they can attach it. Um, they'll write their name on the envelope. And they can take it home with them. They can burn it. If it's something that they feel is non-productive and they need to sort of cleanse themselves of, or they can open it and hold on to it. That's a ritual. And it's, it's that, that moment of healing. So anytime you can ritualize uh, something, it becomes very healing for people. And so I mm. would encourage you on that day, on the 19th, the day before Thanksgiving, Give thanks for your loved one. And as I said before, within every loss, within every pain, within every tragedy, there is a gift. It may not be apparent now, especially if your loss is recent. Mm -hmm. But keep searching for that gift and you will find it. Mm. That, that was that was very well said. And I, I found it to be incredibly helpful. And I think others will as well. Um, I think the last question that I have, um, which sounds like it might be in alignment with this third candle you just described, mm -hmm. um, going back to Luke, um, I'm curious what something would be that you want people to know or remember about him. I think the thing I want people to know most, um, Luke was a man of strong faith. There is this misconception that oh, if you have a strong faith, you would never do this because you're taking it out of God's hands or you're not mm -hmm. a Christian or you're not really a true Christian. And there's all this judgment. <clears throat> and that's layered in our old beliefs about suicide being a crime and a sin against God and all that. Right. You would never say 
my family, my, my son committed cancer. Why do we say commit suicide? Well, that's because back to a time when it was a crime and yep. uh, it was a sin. You commit a sin, but it's not. It was the result of a disease and a mental health disorder that was untreated. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what I would tell people is my son had one of the strongest faiths. I mean, his goal in life was to take his physical pain and write a book about it uh, and to talk about overcoming and resilience. His resilience got eaten away through years mm -hmm. and years of non-treatment and of not having a supportive family who understood, you know, I mean, our family motto for generations is suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> you know, that's not helpful. That's yeah. not helpful to someone who lives with a mental health disorder. Mm. And we had a lot of stigma and shame around mental health. And, and you know, uh, no more, no more. We're living in the real times now. So understanding that he was a strong man, he was a strong man who had a strong faith. He loved the Lord. And you know what? Sometimes you need Jesus and a therapy. <laughs> it's okay mm. to have Jesus and a therapist. I'll put mm. it that way. <laughs> mm. My friend has that t-shirt. I love it. I've That's got great. Jesus. I've got a therapist. <laughs> it's okay. You know, and whatever your faith is, you know, our faith is, can be a protective factor if it also embraces um, the science behind mental what health and, you know, suicide, mm. but it can be a risk factor if it does not. And there are unhealthy teachings. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and I, I, I will tell you, I, I struggled with my faith afterward. I had to, um, reinvent or recreate my relationship with God because it really, mm. my, my faith took a hit, but it was always there. And it's yeah. all, it's continued, you know, it's just, it's a healthier relationship, I believe. Thank you for sharing that. I think that would be really helpful for people. Um, I know that's something I felt after losing my dad. That's something uh, his mother, my grandmother, who's still with us felt and communicated with me was that her faith was really shaken. Mm -hmm. um, I, I appreciate you coming on here today and sharing all of the resources that are available with AFSP. Um, I appreciate all the work that you have done and continue to do to help other survivors of suicide loss. Um, and maybe most importantly, I appreciate you coming on here and sharing Luke's story and commemorating him today. That's that's really helpful and powerful. So I thank you for that. And Rob, your dad's name was? He was Rob as well. Rob Sr. Oh, today you and I have helped Rob and Luke live longer and larger. Mm, that's beautiful. And I absolutely see it that way as well. And I look forward to catching up with you soon at another event. And again, thanks so much for joining me today, Betsy. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>